Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I sure hope he doesn't see us in this bright yellow banana. Are you trying to say that you're embarrassed to be seen in an American classic? Do we wide? Target is westbound. CIA, NSA, Special Forces, we're not them, we're the losers. Ladies. But even the government's best, we're in. And the crowd goes wild. Please! Clay, we have a situation here. Get betrayed. This is Max. Change of plans. The losers know too much. Kill them. Good times. <laughs> We're not soldiers anymore. We're fugitives. Want your life back? You're gonna have to steal it. Who are you? I have a business proposition for you, Clay. I can help you find Max. What's the catch, lady? It's pretty much a suicide mission. That's not like foreboding at all. Welcome back to the land of the living. You know that if we do this, we are waging a war against the Central Intelligence Agency. They started it. I'm sorry I hit you in the face. I'm sorry I threatened to cut your head off. Don't you two feel so much better? No. Ciao, people, and welcome to our 167th episode of Happiness and Darkness, the superhero movie podcast, where we discuss superhero movies from Marvel, DC, Dark Horse Image, and more. Naturally, there will be spoilers, folks, so you have been warned. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and as always, joining me is my podcasting partner in crime, Mr. Keith Bliss. Hey, Keith, how are you today? Oh, not too bad. You know me. I can't complain. I live at the beach. I enjoy some nice weather. I hear the ocean every day, so... I'm doing good. <laughs> Definitely living the dream indeed. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> fantastic stuff. Because today we are discussing The Losers from 2010. This was directed by Sylvain White, who my listeners might know from such movies as I'll Always Know What You Did Last Summer and Slender Man. So more of a horror director, if you will. The screenplay was by Peter Berg and James Vanderbilt, while the score was by John Ottman. On estimate to print Dave's money, this film cost $34 million to make and made $41 million at the box office. So at least it made its money back. And I'm kind of glad because the cast probably was the most expensive thing on this movie, aside from the special effects, of course. So I guess uh, when, it, you know, Keith, you were the one who suggested this movie, you know, like, you know, we should cover this movie, you told me. And I'm like, yeah, let's do this. And I have to say, um, I'm kind of picky when it comes to my action movies. I mean, way back when, you know, in the 90s and so on, I was a big fan of obviously the big Stallone action movies, the Schwarzenegger action movies and what have you. And this had somewhat of that feel with a little bit of A-team mixed in for good measure when it came to the characters. <laughs> 
And also, so yeah, I, I would kind of describe it almost like a 90s action movie with, you know, it's like Schwarzenegger kind of people, uh, should we say, meet the A-team. Heck, I guess it could be a comic version almost of The Expendables, but not as cheesy. But what I found was this was actually rather entertaining. And, you know, you had actually prepared me saying, be prepared to meet quite a few faces that you already know from other superhero franchises. And I was blown out of my mind when I was watching this. I'm like, oh, my God, it's Captain America. It's uh, Gamora. It's the, it was crazy. It was it was fantastic at the same time. Kind of like sitting down and reminiscing with old friends that I've known now cinematically for a long time. All in all, I will say I enjoyed it. The ending was a little bit odd, if you will, but at the same time, I got what they were doing, and it is very much like I said, this kind of action romp. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, I hadn't seen a movie like this in a while. It feels like more 90s than it does mid 2000s. But at the same time, uh, I, I thought it was I thought it was fun. And we got some some fun, some interesting characters and such. So, yeah, I, I'd say well, it, it made for, a, for an entertaining time. And you, I know you've seen this one quite a few times. So what are your general thoughts on it? I agree with you on most of those points, just for the fact that I watched this again just this week, you know, to kind of refresh my memory on it. And it really felt like an A-team type of movie. All it really needed was that voiceover guy to be like, so-and-so and so-and-so was screwed over by so-and-so. And, you know, if you ever watched the old A-team TV show where they had the intro with the guy saying, you know, so-and-so, they were blah, 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 and the blah, blah. Like, that's all that I was missing is some cheesy voiceover. And it could have been the A-team. It really did. I agree with you on the, the vibes. It gave me the 90s vibes. Sort of like early pre-expendables, you know, that kind of thing where just mindless violence and just it's go from the jump. Like there's not spectacular development, but, you know, again, it's an action movie. You don't expect Oscar-worthy, you know, actors or, you know, types of uh <clears throat> excuse me, you don't expect uh, Oscar-worthy action type of characters in this movie. Just, okay, point, click, boom, go. And that's literally what you get through the whole movie. So I, I enjoyed it. It's it's mindless. Like, check your brain out because none of it's going to make sense. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking because I'm like, if we try to, to pull th a thread of this movie, this movie will unravel very quickly because there's barely any logic in it. And it's very almost fourth wall comedy, if you will, when, you know, you're in very dangerous situations, which is typical, I guess, of the kind of the action genre where you have humor, where you're dealing with incredibly dangerous things. And there are certain, you know, plot threads that don't even get uh, examined at <laughs> all halfway through. I'm looking at you, device that can destroy a small island, but never mind. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that cracks me up. It's green terrorism. Like, that's not what that means. I don't think you guys understand that term very well. <laughs> no. And that got sort of never really addressed too much, if you will. But like, I thought it was going to be you know, like Chekhov's bomb, but it wasn't. And uh, mm -hmm. never mind. But other than that, uh, I'm right there with you. As I said, uh, if you try and pull too much of this film, it will unravel and you kind of have to take it. I agree for like the mindless popcorn film that, you know, one would sit down and watch run like, oh, I see what they're doing here. The message is this. And it's a criticism on that. No, it's not. <laughs> it's none of that whatsoever. Not at all. But yeah, I agree with you. I think it was a, a good ride by and large. So I guess let's start off then by looking at some of our losers characters here, starting with the Colonel himself. We have Mr. Jeffrey Dean Morgan as Lieutenant Colonel Franklin Clay 
and the lady who he falls for, Gamora herself, Zoe Saldana, as Aisha Al-Fadil. So, um, Keith, what did you make of these two? I like the chemistry with both of them. It seemed very natural and organic. It wasn't a very forced type of love interest where you can see them going through the motions, but you didn't feel the chemistry. They just were like, haha, we're going to flirt. I like you. You're pretty. You are too. And then naked. Like that wasn't any of that. There were, you know, there was banter. There was actual, you know, you know, they're cracking each other's jokes and, you know, f- actual flirting. Um, it was very telegraphed. It wasn't like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. Considering the rest of his team was riding his ass about how he does, he, you know, falls for girls and literally it happens two seconds later. It wasn't like this whole big stretch, like, wow, I didn't see this coming. They literally were ragging on him. So I liked it. It was fun. They both did really good jobs for the types of characters they were playing. I wasn't, again, expecting Oscar worthy types of acting here. This is fair. Yeah, this also kind of reminds me also a little bit of like uh, Bad Boys as well when it came to kind of the genre and stuff where you have, of course, the, the, the beautiful woman who ends up becoming part, who's either a killer herself or, you know, will end up becoming a part of the boys club, if mm-hmm. you will. And that's very much, I think, what Aisha did, because at the end of the day, she's pretty much the only woman in this film, for the most part, that has a significant role. Yes. I mean, so I, thought, I thought that was that was very sort of 90s action movie where, you know, it's the big he- strapping heroes with the weapons and the guns. And of course, like, it's literally the whole babes and guns thing. And that's pretty much what this film was. And I agree with you. I think probably the character which has the most depth, if we can call it that, is, is Clay because of him being the leader and him having a chip on his shoulder for what went down with the previous mission they were on. I was literally shocked that they made an entire helicopter full, full of kids explode. Right. I was like, you don't expect they, that at all. No, I'm like, they seriously went there. There was kids in there. And like, boom. I'm like, wow. Okay. Is this the kind of movie we're going to get very well? And so at the end of the day, I guess Clay being the leader, he's the one who has who feels probably the most guilt that those kids died because of me in the sense that I was the one who led this mission and therefore I'm the first one accountable. And so I think he's trying to navigate that while trying to obviously get his life back together along with his fellow losers. And yeah, it turns out he's quite the ladies man, apparently. So, which I thought was, uh, was a fun little touch, which once again, I think adds to almost like the man of action who does have princesses in every port and such. And so he's very much that kind of man of action. But at the same time, he there is that kind of almost, I guess, loneliness to him because I think we find out pretty much everybody else has somebody to go home to for the most part, while Clay doesn't really have anybody waiting for him at home. And so I think it's almost natural that he would gravitate towards Aisha. And of course, you know, I guess they're coming from similar backgrounds. And I agree, it was pretty telegraphed because as soon as he notices she's following him, I believe they're in Bolivia, I think it is. That um, he's like, oh, she's from, I'm like, yeah, they're going to sleep together. I know five minutes in, I know that these two are going to end up sleeping together. And lo and behold, we have the whole sexual tension fight between the two of them, which obviously, and I will though say they do end up sleeping together in a rather random and rather weird scene. Cause out of nowhere, <laughs> he yes, shows yes, up with is. a, she shows up with like a bottle of booze and she's like, you know, so what's your plan or whatever. And boom, they're off to the races. I'm like, oh, so that's how it's done. Okay, but um, all right. But and I guess they had to establish that they become a couple. And then we have, you know, the whole I'm the daughter of the, the, the guy you killed. And so everything that unfolds with that. 
but she doesn't really seem to have a problem with it at the end of the day. I mean, at the end of the movie, they are a couple. So it's like, okay, you killed my dad. He was a bad guy. Oh, well, let's stay together. So I'm like, okay, fine. But uh, all the kind of depth that Clay had is out the window at this point, because I almost expected him and Aisha to part ways by the end of the film, like him continuing to be the almost James Bond kind of guy who is not, you know, doesn't have a stable woman in his life. Maybe the, the concept is here. He's finally found, found a woman who gets him and who will keep him, shall we say, uh, you know, in a stable relationship. I guess that's all I can, all I can really sort of fathom from this, because other than that, it seemed a little bit odd. After the whole, you killed my father, I'm going to murder you thing is gone for like five minutes later. She's like, yeah, let's just do this mission together. And I was like, all right. Well, you know, it kind of gave me, in some respects, the Batwoman or Batwoman, Batman and Catwoman dynamic where, you know, they, they're punching each other one scene and then they're, you know, kissing and making love in the next scene and then back to fighting each other. And then like they're, they're very whatever oil and vinegar. And just to see her shift was like, well, you know, one day we're going to confront this thing that you did. Like, but you knew your dad was evil. Like, it, it wasn't like he's the Pope or something and he murdered him. No, the dude's the head of this drug cartel training terrorists and, you know, using kids as drug mules. So, I mean, again, dude's not a saint. Granted, Clay is not much better considering, you know, he murders people and everything, but he killed somebody for the right reasons and she's all like i can't believe you killed my dad but he was bad and she's like i don't care like what <laughs> like, all right so it, it was i i get it you know it, they had to do something to you know create the conflict between the two of them but it was a very weak conflict like you said if you start pulling on these strings you're just like that doesn't that doesn't work that doesn't make much sense I totally agree. And what is it with Zoe Saldana always playing characters who have troublesome fathers? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. No, she really kind of gets stereotyped into that. I think this, I'm not going to say started her down that path, but kind of showed that she could play that character very well because she pays a couple of them where it's, you know, you murdered my dad and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, all right. I mean, hell, even, you know, look at her in the Marvel movies. She has daddy issues. Like, shock, hey, you're green, but you have daddy issues. I mean, they are pretty, I mean, I guess one could almost say that the MCU version of Gamora is pretty similar to Aisha in the sense that uh, I guess it's a character that Zoe knows how to play and she knows how to play it well. So mm -hmm. I suppose, I mean, yeah, because at the end of the day, I guess Aisha is, um, is Gamora with more guns, probably. <laughs> and, uh, yes. and, and, a and a penchant for, for hard liquor, I think. That's pretty much the difference between Gamora and Aisha. But, uh, but no, I mean, I think Zoe did a good job. It was just made me chuckle thinking, yeah, you're complaining about your terrorist dad here. Wait till you get cast as... <laughs> the daughter of the Mad Titan. Then we can talk. But uh, other than that, it was it was it was pretty funny. But I agree. I think the two did have chemistry, and it worked for the most part. But it just seemed weird. Like you and I are going to have to deal with this cut scene where that we're watching a soccer game. Okay, right. <laughs> Who wants pizza? And like they just walk away. Like okay, whatever. Yeah. I so, uh, but I guess I'm not going. I'm not going to pull. I'm trying not. I'm restraining myself not to pull at any threads. So I guess then moving on then. <laughs> Let's get to uh, some other characters who are part of the Losers Club. We have Captain America himself, Chris Evans, as Captain Jake Jensen, another captain once again. Columbus Short as Sergeant Lidwood Porteous, a.k.a. Pooch. Love that name. And of that was course, great. 
<laughs> I love that name so much. And finally, of course, Oscar Hainada as Sergeant Carlos Alvarez, aka Cougar. Another great, a great name. Probably doesn't didn't age well. But that said, uh, Keith, what did you make of these three of Jensen, Pooch, and Cougar? Um, you can really tell that you know they they wanted to integrate the team, those three, into the movie. But I feel like. They dropped the ball with Cougar. He only had like what six lines in the entire movie, maybe more. He has a he speaks Spanish in the beginning, you know, to talk to the kids, which I totally get. And then he says like one random line somewhere else, another random line somewhere else, and then like he makes a comment about his hat, and like that's it. Meanwhile, you have this whole story with Pooch and his wife being pregnant. You know, Jensen's was it niece is in soccer tournament, and then you have Cougar somewhere. We don't know. He's just not on scene and he's in the bathroom, apparently. So they did really good development with two of the three of them. And I feel like the third one was just there because they needed a designated driver. You know, he he was the sniper. He was the long, long gunman. But otherwise, he didn't necessarily do much for the movie. Um, all three of them did, you know, you know, average jobs doing these parts. They weren't anything spectacular again very shallow um script here so i don't expect you know crazy great acting the chemistry between you know jensen and pooch was actually really good i liked them them busting each other's chops you know especially like when he's looking at the picture of the soccer team and he's like oh you know my niece is playing so and so and he's like yeah and he shows the picture to him and he's like oh well all right you know and it's these big burly like 14 year old girls and you're like all right so i i like the camaraderie between the two of them and even them throughout the movie, you see the awkwardness of Jensen, which I appreciated because, you know, again, it's Chris Evans, the world's sexiest man. He's having a hard time talking to women. He always says the dumbest crap at the wrong times. So I liked all of that. You know, it, there are a lot of laugh out loud or at least chuckle moments within the movie, especially with the two of them. I definitely think so. And I think it was a nice flip for, to, for uh, Chris Evans to play somebody who's very awkward around women. I mean, granted, he, you know, uh, the women seem to actually kind of be like intrigued by him because, you know, he's got the bod and everything else, especially when he's kind of stripping down in the, in the uh, elevator and all the women are like, wow, look at him. But then when he opens his mouth, it's just, he just does not, not have that smooth attitude. It's almost, I think, like a contrast to other characters, of course, he has played be it Captain America, but especially Johnny Storm, who's pretty much the opposite of what Jensen is, because, you know, Johnny Storm also has women left, right and center, except he's much smoother and knows kind of how to entice a woman compared to Jensen, because I guess at the end of the day, Jensen is the nerd of the group because he's the computer guy. So you have that kind of stereotype of the guy gets computers and technology. He doesn't get human beings just as much, even though he's very, very supportive when it comes to his daughter. So I guess either him and his wife have separated, I suppose. And so he's still showing up at his daughter's uh, soccer games, which is great. And I have to also add, he has the most ridiculous T-shirts I have ever seen <laughs> a, a grown yes. man wear. <laughs> You've I never mean, seen my t-shirt collection, so I can't judge. <laughs> no, I mean, I was like, wow, they really went to town when it came to this man's garb, because 
I thought it was kind of fun that he was wearing, obviously, his daughter's uh, team's T-shirt, which was kind of fun. But then what's with the highly suggestive woman eating a hot dog, for example, which I thought was he wore throughout the film? I guess he, I know he was portraying as a hot dog stand man or vendor. But then after that, he's kind of wearing that and he's got these very sort of radical, almost um, crazy colored T-shirts with, with the weirdest designs. And I guess it maybe once again plays into the fact that he is the nerd of the team. So he possibly, you know, the stereotype of he gets computers. He doesn't know. He doesn't have dress sense as in he doesn't get the practical things in life. He gets the highly, you ask him to hack into, I don't know, Fort Knox. He can do it for you in two minutes on the computer. If you ask him, you know, dress appropriately, he will show up with a psychedelic t-shirt. So it's uh, it's that kind of, I guess, stereotype. And it's, I guess I liked him playing against, um, should we say type when it comes to, Chris Evans, who's an incredibly handsome man, as we know. And he has some great comedic timing, I think. And I think that him and um, and Columbus, a.k.a. Pooch, work really well together. I agree. The, the, com- the, the comedic time between the two is hilarious and fun. And I think they almost add more of the, the most levity to the film because of them constantly bantering. And I love when Pooch, at a certain point, goes like, I'm the Black MacGyver. And I, <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Not to mention when they're pulling that um, that scheme on trying to lure you're the um, I think it's the CIA in and they're pretending to be dead or what have you. Yes, the, the <laughs> Marines or whatever it was. There was a car accident on some random road. Yeah, that was yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah, because Jensen is like, I'm the one who's paraplegic and you're the one who's dead, and he's checking out the 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 soldier there who's looking him over, like. I didn't realize they had such pretty soldiers, you know, what have you. But he, he's always checking. He, it's always about the ladies when it comes to, to Jensen. I guess he's been divorced, so he's kind of missing a woman in his life. But um, I did I did enjoy their, their their camaraderie very much. So Cougar, I would have, I agree with you. I would have loved for him to have had more dialogue because I think Oscar did actually did a good job in playing him because maybe, maybe he is kind of the more silent type. In this, and I guess they actually mentioned that in the film that he's kind of the, the the quiet guy who's very much about his his trade. I mean, he is a sniper after all, and can literally you know shoot anybody from whatever distance. And I guess that's what it's all about. He's like literally the silent but deadly guy. But at the same time, I think we also find out he's got a, he's got a big heart. I mean, we see how he like you said he talks to the kids and so on, and so he does seem to have a heart. But I guess it maybe plays in once again to the stereotype of. I'm the sniper, so I'm very much collected and don't talk and just sort of do my thing. Maybe that was maybe my take on that. Yeah, I, it kind of go in a couple of different ways. He, I, out of all the random characters you wanted to know more about, Cougar was definitely one of those because they went so in in depth relatively with the rest of the guys that you're like, well, what about Cougar? What's he doing now? Oh, he's you know again off having a cigarette or doing polishing his gun who knows so <laughs> yes exactly but I, I i will definitely applaud his marksmanship because he can literally hit anything and i'm like wow they definitely have the best the best marksman in the world when it comes to cougar and uh, and yeah you know you don't touch the hat it's all about the hat so, uh, so i totally get him being very very personal when it comes to his headwear for sure so anything else on these characters uh keith no, I. You talking about his marksmanship made me think about uh, when Jensen was running through the office to get the algorithm to unlock the hard drive, but he's standing in front of the window and he does the little finger guns, and Cougar snipes the guys from you know, whoever the hell knows how far away because you don't really have a reference point. But I thought that was great too, just to show his marksmanship. 
Oh yeah, I mean and that's and I I mean I can definitely appreciate that. I mean I you know have played my my shoot 'em up games and uh, one of my apparently one of the favorite things I actually enjoyed at the time because you know before, as a kid growing up I had very poor eyesight. So it was always nice, like, yeah, I can act, I'm actually a great marksman on video games. So <laughs> there was there was always that satisfaction. So I guess then moving on, let's get to the dark side of the table. Starting with our main henchman, we have Mind Hunters Holt McCallany as Wade Travis. So what did you make of our henchman, Keith? Um, he was all right. Again, it was one of these, they didn't really do a lot of development. You know, when they're in the helicopter, and I believe it's Pooch, was like, oh, I was made by Wade. And uh, Zoe's character was like, who is that? And he, they're like, oh, he's the really bad guy. And she's like, well, what are you guys? We're the less bad guys. Like, that's the best explanation you can give for him is he's the really bad guy. So, you know, it, it was all right. And, you know, he had some of his fun one-liners or comedic, you know, jokes in there when he was interacting with his boss. So again, he, not anything special, not the worst, very, I like him personally, Holt. I've seen him in a lot of movies and he does play that type of guy where it's, he's either the anti-hero, the borderline bad guy or the bad guy. He plays them all very well. So when I see him on screen, he's, I know he's going to be, odds are pretty good. He's going to be the bad guy or henchman type character. So I wasn't really shocked to see him. He did a great job. You know, I liked it. He was cast very well. Oh, I very much agree. I mean, as I mentioned, me being a big fan of Mindhunter, that's actually where I was first introduced to uh, Holt McCallany's acting. And so it was rather interesting to see him in this because here he is a little bit younger compared to the character he plays in Mindhunter, which is more of a grizzled detective, uh, obviously going after all these or trying to understand all these crazy serial killers. And here, yeah, he very much, I think, is plays the role of the stereotypical henchman who doesn't really seem particularly smart and is kind of almost often berated by his bosses. And you just don't get it, do you? I have to literally spell stuff out to you because you don't understand. Or he's very literal otherwise. Clearly, he's very good when it comes to other things like, you know, obviously handling weapons and what have you, because he literally seems to be Max's right-hand man for the most part. But yeah, he does have those tropes of the the goon, if you will, who is a little bit slow on the uptake sometimes and sometimes doesn't get the whole picture. But that's why I was kind of sort of trying to get, is he that dangerous? I suppose when it comes to weapons, he probably is. You ask him to maybe solve a puzzle or something, he probably won't know where to go. But other than that, I, I thought it was, it was fun because I think um, Holt kind of played him as the straight guy, if you will, as the straight henchman. But it was also, there was also some comedy in it as well, especially when Wade and Max were discussing Max's master plan of literally making islands disappear with this kind of somewhat of, I guess, of a nuclear weapon, if you will, if it is nuclear at all. But and so he was like fascinated by that. And also it was, um, it was, it was, it was interesting. I would have liked to have known more about Wade in the past because uh, clearly if, um, if it was mentioned, I mean, I guess he, he knew of the losers, but you wonder whether sometime back he might've been a part of the team. I guess he actually had worked. I think Pooch had mentioned he'd actually worked with him way back when. So it would have been interesting to see how that relationship became strained or maybe like Roke. He was he he kind of followed the money. It was like, yeah, there's nothing in this for me. I'm going to join Max, who promises to you know throw millions of bucks at, at me. So I'd rather do that than do anything else. I guess that's what he did, probably. Um, well, you know, in, yeah. his, in his defense, to a certain extent, 
you know, Max is always there and he is thinking in very broad strokes, but at the same time, he's talking to you very condescendingly. It's sort of like the whole Lex Luthor against any henchman kind of thing. He's flexing his smarts where he could have easily explained things to Wade, but he just chose to be an asshole about it. And, you know, the scene where he's like, I need, what was it? A fire team of 18 people. And he's like, uh, oh, okay. He's like, all right, so get me this team. He's like, fine. And then he, he says it again. He's like, all right. He's like, but are you sure we need them now? Yes. And then they keep going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then later in the movie, Max is on the phone with Wade and he's like, all right, kill the fire team. He's like, but what? He's like, yeah, kill them all. It's not like you're related to any of them. And Wade's like, I, I kind of am. <laughs> I was like, that's funny. So I did, you know, there was, they showed his, you know, I'm going to say limited intelligence, but at the same time, he's so kept in the dark. It's almost like he is the idiot because he just doesn't know what's going on because Max doesn't explain anything to him. So he treats him like an idiot, explains stuff to him like an idiot. So he's sort of in the dark, but at the same time, doesn't want to piss Max off because Max is batshit crazy. That he certainly is. And uh, I think you make a great point there that, yes, Max probably doesn't illustrate the entire plan to Wade. So there are moments where it's kind of like, how am I supposed to deal with this? And I suppose being uh, working for somebody like Max, you have to be really careful about what you say and what you do. I mean, we see that, heck, Max literally kills uh, the, the chick who was holding the, the umbrella over his head for kind of, you know, tripping or something. So you don't know that from one minute to the next, the man can literally pull a gun on you and kill you. So I suppose Wade also is trying to literally walking on eggshells when it comes to Max. So I guess there is also that to and add to that. Of course, Max doesn't really, aside from kind of trying to sound clever and, and you know, an evil genius, he doesn't particularly, he isn't particularly thorough when it comes to explaining things to Wade. So I guess you definitely, you definitely make a good point in Wade's favor. So I guess then, speaking of Max, let's get to our two main antagonists. We have one whom we know and one who is revealed, as we have Jason Patrick as Max and Idris Elba, another chap from the MCU and from tons of other things, of course, as Captain William Roke. So, um, Keith, what did you make of these two? And did you see the uh, the twist coming that Rope would go bad? Well, with a name like that, you're like, well, you're kind of setting this one up. They they foreshadowed the twist. You're like, oh, look, he went bad, especially after the interaction with him and Clay, where they, you know, he pulled the knife on him. So you could see that there was a little bit of tension within the group. So when it, it finally, you know, popped off. I wasn't super duper surprised. You, you always know that there's going to be the rogue guy in the group. It just, it happens. It's not really a big stretch. Um, so when it did, I was like, oh, okay, he, he's the bad guy. Because I think at this point, like when, in his acting career, he had played more bad guys than good guys. So to see him in that type of a character, it wasn't a huge stretch. It wasn't until, you know, he started doing Luther on BBC America and, uh, all the Marvel stuff where you see him become the good guy. Hell, in Fast and the Furious, he was Black Superman or whatever he called himself. So, you know, there's another bad guy character. So I, I hope they, they cast him as James Bond just to screw everything up or something, just, you know, to change it up a little bit. But, and, you know, again, there had to be, you know, a bad guy or some other twist because it was so telegraphed, like um, with Zoe's character, Zoe's character, she becomes, you know, the daughter of the guy who was killed in the beginning. You're like, not really a surprise. Okay. 
So this was a nice little extra kind of icing on the cake, as it were. And then when you do see Max and you do see that he is completely unhinged, um, especially in the beginning of the movie where he gives you know Wade the nod and he thinks Wade's going to punch the dude and he throws him off a building and then gets mad, but at the same time doesn't get mad. He's like, well, it made my case, but you really could have just punched him in the face. So, and Wade was even like, I, you gave me the nod. So he must've, they must've had interactions before where he's done that. And he's like, no, I wanted you to throw him off a building. So that would have been another one of those funny scenes where he screwed it up once, but you know, this is what happened. So the one thing that kind of irked me with Max was he's walking around with a glove on the entire movie. And they never explain why he has one glove on. I'm like, what did he burn his hand? Is it like a robot hand? Is it what's up with the hand and what's up with the stupid glove? Cause it was a, he changed the glove to match his outfits. So it wasn't like this is a new thing that just happened. He's whatever happened to his hand. He's been dealing with for such a long time. He's accessorized his suits with stupid gloves. So, you know, it just, again, it's a, that extra step of crazy. Oh, and then the very end where he and Clay get into that final face off and he's like, well, you know, it's a nice thing about not being the good guy. And he throws the bomb detonator into the water and he just takes off and leaves. And it just shows you like he literally has, he gives no shits whatsoever because he thinks he's untouchable. And he just like, well, I have all these plans and hell, he even called this plan C. So he already had A and B going and he had C. Hell, he probably is up to Z. You'll never know. But, you know, he was the generic Bond villain where, you know, like Goldfinger, you know, all that kind of crazy stuff where they have these crazy elaborate plans just to have them foiled by some idiot by accident. Exactly. And I, and you know, this is another case where you think to yourself, were they hoping to get a franchise? Because of the fact that Max does not get killed, you know, at the end of the day, pretty much. So you wonder where they might have been looking at. I mean, granted, okay, he gets caught on the bus and everything else, but still, you wonder whether they might have been looking at a possible franchise or doing something like The Expendables, you know, where they had more of them. I don't know, but it, I would have liked more of a fitting end for Max, if you will, compared to what we got with Roke, because I guess, you know, also here in very typical action fashion, Clay, I, if, if I'm not mistaken, actually tells Roke, you will die a terrible death. And that's exactly what happens to him. So it's very much that, you know, telegraphed, I think, is definitely the, the correct word to use here, which is typical of action movies. I've seen so many Schwarzenegger films where he's threatening the, the, the final boss, if you will, saying you will die and so and so and I will do this and this to you. And that's what literally happens at the end of the film. And it's kind of a similar case here between Clay and Roke when he threatens him about dying a grisly and horrible death, which is pretty much what happens. I was kind of sad, if you will, that Roke did go to the, the dark side, if you will, because I'm, I guess because I'm a big fan of Idris Elba. And I'm actually, I actually do hope he will get to play James Bond at some point because he's a very charismatic actor. I mean, I've seen him do other things in actually really sort of B or C movies, but he makes the movie shine because of his charisma and because of his intensity. Case in point, uh, I'm thinking of um, a couple of films, even that we've discussed here on the podcast, where he's been in them. And, uh, and, and like I said, he's he, he, Ghost Rider 2, uh, classic <laughs> example. Yep. Horrible movie, but Idris Elba lit, 
elevates that film with his performance. So he really I'm did, I, actually, that's the sad thing is he was the highlight of the whole movie. Exactly. So I'm thinking to myself, I hope he gets he gets a role like that, like say James Bond kind of because I think he's kind of earned it. And so, yeah, it's true that the the tension was there between Clay and Roke, but it also seemed you know they'd been friends for such a long time, and I was trying to piece together his motive. And he was like, you know, you kind of left us out to dry after what happened in Bolivia and the kids being killed and. It almost seems like Roke didn't really know where to turn until kind of Max showed up saying, you know, I've got a solution for you. I can give you some great money if you work for me. So it does make Roke's morals questionable, as in, is this a man of honor or is he literally a mercenary? And I probably tend to go towards the, the mercenary over the man of honor because at first, he seemed to be kind of more honorable and more kind of, it's all about the family and the team. But here, he literally shows his mercenary side, which kind of saddened me a little bit because I was hoping we would see him at the end of the film with the rest of the losers doing his thing. But like you said, they had to up the ante and we have seen the friend become the enemy in a lot of action movies. So I guess it satisfies that trope. But still, it was it was a little bit sad seeing these two guys who'd clearly been in a team for so long together, ending up being being uh, we say sworn enemies, which is very sad. And when it came to Max, yes, another very stereotypical villain. He's totally batshit crazy. I mean, we do get to see his hand without a glove once, and we do see that I believe it's burnt or something, but we never something, know how. Yeah. yeah, but like you said, we never know how it happened. Heck, they could have even just said. Clay had done something to him or one of the one of the losers. That's why he bears a grudge against them because they'd squared off before and he had had another name. Maybe Max was not even his name it was like a code name for him. Right. So it could have been, could have been almost like the, the six fingered man from the Princess Bride kind of thing of like that's I did that to that guy. It's him, you know, or something like that. You know, he murdered my parents or something like that. But um, yeah, it was it was curious. You do wonder how he got that. And yes, he's incredibly unhinged. I mean, I was actually—I was literally shocked that he shot the the umbrella holding girl. I'm like, what did she do, man? Come on! He's <laughs> like, takes out the gun, boom, she's dead. And even when he's, I guess, hanging out with the, um, should we say, with the with the prostitutes, if you will, and he's like, you stay wet. I'm like, okay, but it's like, wow, man. But yeah, it was uh, it was crazy, and he's totally off his rocker. And like you said, in te- in typical action movie even spy movie fashion, the villain gets foiled by just dumb luck. And they'd been leading up to the whole, these nuclear bombs can literally destroy an island. Why didn't we see more of that? Or why didn't we see Max getting vaporized by one of his own bombs? That's what I'd like to know. Well, you know, the what cracked me up is that little kill switch that he had, you know, it was 10 seconds or whatever the heck it is. Well, when he tested it out there was only eight or nine seconds on the bomb well he drops it it clearly took 10 seconds or so to you know fall then him to jump behind it you know clay's character to jump in and then him to find it underwater and get back up and i'm like y'all should be dead like that's not even a maybe you literally should be just a crater in the ground and we call it a day nope magically clay you know apparently has you know super speed or something and swims up and catches this detonator that's what's definitely one of those tropes in every movie that has a bomb that (laughs) somehow magically this character whoever it is you know batman in some cases 
or you know clay in this one where he just magically runs you know mach 10 and catches whatever device because you and i do something for 10 seconds we're we're blown up it's just no ifs ands or buts i can't run that fast you can't run that fast but apparently everybody in movies can and happens in mission impossible all the time i've seen all uh, tons of movies where you have 4.3 seconds (laughs) and it's the next 20 minutes of the movie like when did we hit bullet time so I get it. Whatever. What kind of with Rook's character, like you said, he and Clay have been friends for a long time. So shit has gone sideways more than once. Like, why was this the one that broke the camel's back? Like, how was this different than any other time? Yes, I get it. It was a plane full of kids. And but it wasn't Clay's fault. You're taking it out on the wrong guy. It's clearly this idiot Max's fault. And what do you do? All right, I'm going to work for Max and get money. So clearly it didn't bother you that much. It bothered you more so the fact that Clay didn't have a plan for some psychopath blowing up a helicopter with kids in it. It's it's very it's that's why it kind of made made Rook's character a little bit questionable. I agree, and 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 yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you when it comes when it comes to everything. It's just like, where's the resolution when it comes to Max? As I mentioned before, because we know he gets robbed on the bus, but that's it. So that's why I'm thinking they might have wanted to do a losers to like. Max's return or something like that. I mean, you know, hope, I guess, but probably the returns were like, yeah, we probably shouldn't do another one because this one made its money back, but it didn't do as well as probably they hoped it would. But, um, but yeah, I, that's why I thought to myself, there was a little bit of inconsistency with the Roke character, because like you said, if him and Clay have been on so many missions together, they must've seen some pretty bad crap throughout the course of their experiences, both as, I guess, Marines and as, you know, this kind of offshoot group of the losers. So it, it is like, I agree. It's like, why did, why did this particular one break, you know, break the camel's back? Cause I think he maybe sees it as you left us alone when he really didn't. Cause he's kind of like after Bolivia, where did you go? And clay was the, like the only one trying to get the band back together and trying to pick up the pieces after Bolivia. And that's why I, I didn't get the I didn't get the rogue story, but I suppose, like you said, we needed something to happen and what have you. But I don't know. I would rather have had Roke being saved or something like that, and Max biting the bullet. But you know, it's it's these action movies, and and that's 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 how it goes, I suppose. <laughs> but, and I, yeah. I'm going to imagine, you know, in the comics, they they obviously like every other comic book, they go into better detail with a lot of the backstory you know i would bet you dollar donuts that there was a flashback with clay and roke doing something and this isn't the first time that crap's gone sideways but again you'll never know that because you like you said they probably planned for a you know a losers two or something i would have actually found it funny on the bus when max tosses his phone out the window that when those two guys sit down to steal his watch, he goes to take his watch off and he just pulls the guns and shoots both of them. Like nobody's business, just shoots him and just goes back to what he's doing because he's that much of a sociopath. It doesn't even phase him. That would have been in perfect Max fashion. And I think right? once again, we've been kind of like the whole, you know, we, you never know, you might get a, a losers too. But uh, yeah, and as often I think sometimes it happens with some of these comic book properties is they will take, you know, a story arc that lasts for like 100 issues and cram it into an hour and a half. So for all we know, within the original Losers comics, all this story played over the course of months and months and months after, you know, the Losers 
had that, that terrible tragedy in Bolivia. And we might have seen more time of them trying to regroup and, you know, Clay doing his thing and Jensen doing his thing and everything else. So it could, it does almost feel to me like they compressed possibly a big storyline into like an hour and a half just for the heck of it. Kind of reminds me of what, um, of the, the terrible version of a, a, a series of, of unfortunate events when they made the movie, the, the, um, uh, the Lemony Snicket film. Yeah. I was so upset with that film because you're literally cramming like three or four books, which are almost like a hundred and plus pages long into one movie, which is now and a half. And there's so much stuff going on in those three books. You can't do it. So that's the kind of feel I got makes more sense as a TV show. Heck, I could see this being a TV show because just like the A-Team, you know, tried to do something like that. I don't know if it would maybe play as well today with, you know, 2022 crowds possibly. But um, as a throwback, I mean, people are loving the 80s stuff like the Stranger Things. So they might be like, oh, one of those old school action things. I could get behind this. I mean, we, could you see this as a series down the line? I could see it as a series, but it'd have to be done like Stranger Things. It'd have to take place in the 80s or 90s because a lot of the stuff that they did or a lot of the plot devices that were in the movie just didn't didn't do very well for me. You know, like they had the encrypted hard drive and we needed the algorithm. Like, that's not what you're looking for. You need the key and, oh, or they just need better script writers. One of the two. I could see them, you know, doing a show two maybe three seasons and really flushing the whole thing out you know have clay build his team up and then you know the end of the first season is that compound debacle where you know max blows up the helicopter and so on and so forth and they spend season two chasing him down and then season three there's the confrontation and like you said there is the payoff where max either gets caught max gets killed whatever just something other than dude rides off on a bus and gives his watch to some gangster looking guys like really that's that's what i get like plus it also helps would help explain how even max got to where max is you know he's supposed to be this big blah 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 at the cia but you other than some random voice on you know some headphones and this other crazy stuff you never just some random dude basically who happens to be a supervillain essentially so i think the tv series would do better to flush out a lot of the characters you know even um the the main character from the beginning that gets assassinated flush his character out all of this can be you know a better backstory for everybody heck cougar could have you know find out he has sort of like um Hawkeye, where he's got like, you know, a family somewhere in like some country, whatever the case may be, just something like literally give us a bone as to a little bit more of these characters. I definitely think so, because they could have been so much more compelling. I mean, I, I did mention you know, that the director, Sylvan White, is more of a horror movie guy. And let's be honest, he hasn't directed the best horror movies. I, mean, <laughs> I, I still know what you did last summer is pretty bad. And uh, I've seen both the first one. The first one wasn't great. But the second one was really bad. And Slender Man, it was really bad. I mean, for somebody who actually had really enjoyed the Slender Man video game, watching this, I actually watched it with some friends of mine, like, oh, cool. This is like the Slender Man movie. This is going to be good. It wasn't. And so I think to myself, you know, I, I, I don't want to diss uh, Van White too much, but I'm thinking to myself, if you're kind of making these mediocre horror movies, 
I don't know. I mean, you're trying to maybe, I don't know, redeem yourself possibly by doing something old school action. He succeeds for the most part, but the story is so threadbare. And I know we can't get bogged down too much in the story because we just kind of have to sit back, shovel popcorn into our mouths and just like, oh, cool, explosion. Oh, cool, hot chick. Oh, cool, that. But it just, I don't know. It, it, for somebody who, I guess, analyzes things more cerebrally these days when it comes to films, I don't know. I'm just, I just I'm like, is it supposed to be that bad that it's good? As in like um, the latest Jurassic World film, which is the silliest movie ever made, but it's, yes. enter it's entertaining as all get out for, for the folks who'd followed the franchise since 97. Or is it like, I'm trying to make a great epic piece, but I'm failing miserably. I think he's trying to almost do a spoof on the action film, but it's not even that good. You know, it's entertaining, no. but it's like, where's the meat you know right it's not like the tv series the boys where it's you know a, a twisted take on superheroes and the genre itself like everything is just dialed to 11 in that series but it's dialed up in 11 consistently across the series it wasn't just like oh the superheroes were 11 no like the quote-unquote good guys in there are just as crazy as the bad guys so i i think his problem was just being an early 2000 movie. You know, he was, was it 2010? And this is only like his third or fourth real anything at that point. You know, prior to that, it was just movies. So, or movies, music videos and shorts and things of that nature. This was like his real, like second, you know, attempt at a movie. His first one, I think was like uh, Stomp the Yard or some crazy stuff like that. And then after that, he just kind of, turned into tv series guy and he just did a handful of like one episode here two episodes here hell i think his longest stretch was like five episodes or six episodes in like hawaii 50 he really doesn't have a lot of directing experience behind his you know under his belt movie wise tv series which is kind of where i could see this type of movie being works well but you know, movie, it just doesn't translate. Like you said, there's so many, you, like, as we discussed, there's so many gaps in the story. There's so many, just not even so much plot holes, just poor writing. You know, there's always a plot hole in every movie. You can't necessarily apply real world logic to everything, but just this one makes your head hurt that little extra. You're like, but why? Like th this wasn't like, I get the twist that there had to be a twist, but why this? Or, you know, you go through all this crazy stuff and the closing scene is Pooch walking into the uh, delivery room of his wife that he hasn't spoken to in, what, five, six, eight months, whatever the case may be. And he's like, hi, honey. Sorry, I was stuck in traffic. And she's like, ha, 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 cut. And you're like, what the crap did I just see? Like, what? How? Ugh. Like, you groan because you're just mad. You're like, that's what I get as a closer? You have Max riding on a bus who you know, whatever, and him breaking into a hospital because his wife pregnant. He doesn't bother to call her at any point in the however many months he's been, quote unquote, dead. Nope, nope. He just shows up at the hospital like, hey, honey, push. And you're like, all right, we're good. No big deal. So, yeah. I guess maybe, you know, it's not only necessarily just Mr. White's fault, but probably we should probably be yelling more at Peter Berg and James Vanderbilt who wrote this film. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, or, or I guess White should have talked more to Vanderbilt and Berg saying, guys, oh, is this what we're doing? Okay. But I guess, you know, maybe had we had this movie come out in the 90s, we probably like, 
cool. Yeah, doesn't make any sense. But there were explosions and there were, you know, good looking women and good looking guys. That's all I needed. So I guess maybe now in 2022, we're kind of wanting a little bit more than just that, than just explosions and good looking people and, uh, you know, acrobatics and fights and shot and, you know, people shooting at each other and wild chases and what have you. There needs to be a little bit more substance to it. I mean, you can do that. But here, like you said, even the simplest things like tell me where Max is, is there going to I mean, I, I, I the only th- way I can I can um, chalk it up to is we're planning on making a sequel. So we're not going to kill Max off. That's the only way I can tell. And then the other thing which I thought was kind of fun, which is very in, in uh, one of the, the positive points was the, the soundtrack. It was so you know, kind of early 2000s when it comes to some of the music used, I cannot believe they found a place for Don't Stop Believing by Journey. I was like, okay, I get the irony of it. It was almost very kind of like what you would see in a Deadpool film where, you know, you have Angel of the Morning, for example, when it comes to to his film. And here you have um, Don't Stop Believing when a big action scene is happening. So I get the juxtaposition. That was kind of fun. But yeah, I guess they were able to throw in Journey into this. So I'll give them points for that. But other than that, I was like, yeah, I, I, it's a, it was fun. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. It was fun. But I, I have seen other action movies with a better plot. Or at least it has a beginning and an end. This one didn't seem to kind of not, uh, seemed unable to stick the landing. Yeah, I think the ending kind of got chalked up to executive decision. They're like, we're going to make, you know, a trilogy out of this or a whole series or something. And then, like you said, it's made a little bit more than its money back. It's probably actually done very well on streaming services. But, you know, considering Warner Brothers has pretty much canceled everything they're going to make, we're probably never going to see a new expandable, uh, a new uh, one of these loser movies. I don't think so either, to be honest. So I guess then, as, as we have come to, you know, to kind of conclusive thoughts on this film, let's get to ratings. And Keith, what do you give this movie out of 10? Um, for the sheer popcorn value, uh, I'm going to give it probably uh, a 4 out of 10. Uh, if you want to go for the rewatchability, it's a 2. You watch it once, it's not one of those movies you're like, crap, I got nothing to do. I need something to watch. Let's watch it again. No, it's like a one and done kind of movie. So we'll split the difference. I'll give it a three out of 10. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess you're probably more, you're stricter than I am because I'm not going to give it a passing grade by any stretch of the imagination. I'm actually going to give it a 4.5 because okay, there you go. it does have some redeeming, quali- <laughs> redeeming qualities. I mean, <laughs> I guess I'm giving it a 4.5 and talk about redeeming qualities. I mean, but uh, I will give it, to, I will hand it to some of the comedic moments between uh, Jensen and Pooch, which were fun. And I did like, I did enjoy that. And the soundtrack was fun being a journey fan. I, I can never get, get tired of hearing don't stop believing. So I thought it was kind of fun. They threw that in there, but it was the story that kind of failed this film, at least in my opinion, no surprise. It barely made its money back. So yeah, I'm going to give it a four and a half out of 10, but you know, folks, if you if you don't have anything else to watch and you've not seen it and you want to see some of your MCU favorites, I guess you want to see Captain America, Gamora, uh, Heimdall, and a couple of others in, in all in one place doing different things in an action movie, definitely watch it. But 
don't expect a miracle and don't expect the masterpiece. So it's four and a half out of 10 for me. So I guess that is our movie, folks. And of course, dear listeners, if you want to share your thoughts on the movies we discuss here, or if you'd like to take the plunge and join us as a guest, you can do so by shooting us an email at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. Once again, that email is happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. If you feel to support us by giving us a like on Facebook, where you find us as Happiness and Darkness, or on Twitter, where you can find us as High Darkness Pod. And to Keith, when you're not here discussing The Losers and other films, where can folks find you on the interwebs? Uh, you know me, I'm always creeping around on Facebook. I, I check out our website all the time. So, you know, if anybody wants to toss me a comment, just at me, you know, Keith Bliss, and I will be more than welcome to message you back, respond to your comments, whatever it is. Otherwise, I just, same thing I do every night, try and take over the world. Sounds like a plan to me, and I'm sure eventually you will succeed. And when it comes to me, folks, you can find me hosting the country music radio show Whiskey and Cigarettes, playing today's country, traditional country, and everything else in between. For more info about that and where to in, visit our website. That's whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. Podcast-wise, feel free to check out our other project, Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast, where myself, Sam Sprouse, and Rachel Friend are reviewing all the movies that won the Oscar for Best Picture from 1927's Wings to the present day. Also, if you're fans of a Titans and or Doom Patrol, you can find myself and Charles Skaggs on Titan Talk, the Titans podcast, where we're currently reviewing season four of Titans. And of course, as of next month, Doom Patrol will be returning. So we'll also be discussing that in tandem. And speaking of things to come on this show, next time we'll be taking on the 2011 Sam Liu and Lauren Montgomery film, Batman Year One. So Keith, any... Uh, Quick thoughts on our next film before we sign off. I'm looking forward to it. I actually, I enjoyed it the first time I watched it. You know, again, DC movies have a much higher rewatch value for me, even if it's animated than a lot of the other MCU or even anybody outside of this. So I enjoy it. I, I like watching it from time to time. I'm definitely looking forward to this one as well as Batman Year One holds a special place in my heart, especially when it comes to comics. It was one of the first full-blown comics I picked up as a kid. So the story meant a lot to me. So I'm looking forward to discussing this for sure. So folks, uh, that said, thanks as always for listening to the show and supporting us. We will see you next time with Batman Year One. Until then, stay super. Ciao, my people.